Hey everyone, it's Disraeli Smith. On this edition of the GPPR podcast, we Jake and I talked to former First Lady Dorothy McCullough. During this uh, interview, we discussed the role of public policy at the local and state level. We also talked about the willingness to serve, the uncertainty in our political system, the role that uh, her and her husband are playing in the local community, and more. We hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening to another edition of the GPPR podcast. So uh, this is the GPPR podcast. I'm Jake Ford, editor-in-chief. We're with Israeli Smith, interview and podcast editor, and we have the supreme uh, <laughs> enjoyment to be interviewing uh, Dorothy McAuliffe. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit with us. We greatly appreciate it. I know our listeners do, but thank you as always. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk with you too. Jake, Disraeli, it's good to see you again. I thought at the beginning of all this, and now we're getting close to the end. It's hard to believe uh, the fellowship's been great. Yeah. But hard to believe our... It's the last week, officially, although I have an extra session next week. So oh, lovely. Can, yeah, anyone, I don't know when this is going to air, but. <laughs> <laughs> are, are there any secrets to, uh, do they include the current fellows into interviewing the future fellows? No, actually, at we, least we not at this juncture. Not, yeah. not at this juncture. At orientation, we had some former fellows come our first day and kind of give the, their insights mm-hmm. and some funny stories and do's and don'ts, and that was really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did have a little engagement on the front end with some former fellows, and that was fun and, and helpful. It's an interesting cohort. Yes, yes, yeah. it is. It is. I've enjoyed getting to know everybody. Um it's been fun sharing office with Katie Walsh and yeah. someone I probably would have not run into necessarily. Um, I mean, Washington's a small town, so mm-hmm. you do generally, you know, parties don't necessarily, uh, we have lots of friends across the, the aisle, um, but I'm not sure I would have run into Katie. Never know, um, but it was fun to share an office with her and, uh, you know, get to know her a little bit and um, all the fellas, you know. Yeah. Um, and Nadim, I didn't know either. He was mm-hmm. Speaker Pelosi's right. chief of staff. I didn't know him. But now I do, and, you know, same party. But, um, yeah, they've all been great. Steve, uh, Eugene, mm-hmm. um, been great to get to know them all. They're wonderful, and can you, interesting people. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a great class. Yeah. I mean, I'm always excited to see who will come next, but yeah. they, it'll be tough to measure up to this current class. But Absolutely. Can, <laughs> really tough. Can, can you talk a little bit about your, your student groups, what, do you, what the main subject is you guys have been discussing yeah. and your kind of experience so, working directly with the students? It's been wonderful. Our, my student strategy team is awesome, and uh, they're all freshmen, which I find particularly impressive because they are all um, super engaged, uh, smart, wise mm-hmm. beyond their years um and some of them have been born in 2000 right. which is just like it, it flummoxes me the yeah. 2000 thing blows my mind yeah yeah it, mm. it's it's funny because i i always have to I, I i find myself often qualifying my some of my comments is well you even born then which i try not to do <laughs> but it's amazing Tell how the much iPod. they know it, 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 you know regardless of the fact that they didn't live through you right. know mm-hmm. a lot of the my frame of reference, um, they all are very bright, and we've had a good time um, going through the outline that I proposed, which was about civic engagement in an era of distrust mm-hmm. and apathy as it relates to um, public service, which I think over the last year, we've found that while there is this kind of discontent with democratic institutions and the idea of public service, we've also seen an, an incredible rejuvenation and excitement and thinking about 
you know, all the young people who are running mm -hmm. everywhere, certainly the March for Our Lives, which has happened just, you know, within the last couple of weeks, this idea that young people are really taking ownership. And while it might not have been within the last several years around, you know, typical pathways in public mm -hmm. service, certainly the startup companies and, and new ideas around uh, giving back, you mm -hmm. know, the social responsibility in terms of entrepreneurship, those ideas have been out there and percolating, but I feel like now it's all kind of coming together, both with excitement around the upcoming midterms, what we saw in the yeah. Virginia election in the fall. Right. So when I wrote this outline, I think so much has happened since when I wrote this outline as a proposal. Um, we talk about how do we revitalize American democracy through public service, and we've just had a great time looking back, but also looking forward. Um, and my particular focus was an area of wanting to engage was how do we get you know this next generation really thinking about public service mm -hmm. um, as a career pathway right. and uh, maybe yes in the new models of public service but also thinking about running yourself running at mm -hmm. the local level running for Congress running um, you know uh, just so many opportunities to serve in elected office and and then we talk about things like, well, what's preventing that from happening, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. There's this distrust, but there's also this reality of college debt. Right. And uh, people I, can, about... I can commiserate. <laughs> we, we commiserate the value. We appreciate our Georgetown degrees, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we commiserate the value uh, of them uh, mm -hmm. in terms of college debt. And it affects, you know, impacts career choices, you know, right out oh, of yeah. college. Um, so... I've had a good time. We've yeah, a time. What, what an amazing uh, strategy group. A lot of really big ideas. Right. Big ideas. Yeah. Yeah, big ideas. So, so let's unpack a couple of those. Because like, I think a few things, you know, came to mind where you have this, this new paradigm of, you know, student engagement, student activism, you know, leading marches, younger millennials, whatever the generation before millennials is, you know, being involved, X, thank X, you, so. you know, being, there, yeah. being involved, you know, in your marches and things of that nature. You're seeing, you know, record number of women running for congressional seats and local and, and state elections, you know, but you're still seeing, so there's a lot of energy to your point, you know, but you're still seeing some distrust. Some of it still seems temporary, you know, in terms of movements, you know, come and go, mm -hmm. the window policy windows ebb and flow, uh, you know, how do you see us harnessing that energy into something sustainable, right. you know, versus a flash pan, momentary, you know, pissivity, for lack of a better word, with how we're feeling the status quo. Right. Well, I think that what we've seen in starting with, because it all goes back to Virginia, right? So mm -hmm. Virginia's governor's race, right? First governor's race with New Jersey, right after the election, the presidential election. So a year later, we're in off year, 2017. We saw incredible energy, not only women running and winning in our House of Delegates and our General Assembly, um, almost flipping mm -hmm. the party. That's a whole other story. But then we saw also the largest turnout ever in our statewide elections by millennials. Then we've seen special mm -hmm. elections, um, you know, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and we just see this, you know, increased energy. I think the more participation is up and the more people feel their vote matters, the more we're going to be able to sustain uh, this energy going forward. I think 
couple things that are really important and we've talked about are gerrymandering and how that impacts the drawing of the maps, how that impacts, really at the crux of it is how do people feel like, do they feel like their vote matters? And I think we've been able to prove within the last year it does matter. It can matter by one vote and it can matter in these special elections where typical, the party in power thought they had a hold on power and all of a sudden they don't. And I think that in 2020, when we redraw the lines, first of all, there's 36 governor's races up this time. I don't, I think there's been more focus now than ever on like, look, it's not just Congress, Mm -hmm. it's state races matter because look at the state legislature, right? right? Democratic party lost 900 seats over the last several couple, four years, eight years. And we need to get those legislatures back. So that because things like voting rights and mm-hmm. who, what kind of ID do you have to present? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have a prior conviction and you've been, if you're a felon, a former felon, are you able to vote or not vote? Big issue in Virginia. Mm-hmm. So these things are state issues. And I think the more we can focus on, and who draws the state lines? I mean, the, the federal and the state legislative lines? State legislature. So I think the more energy we're able to focus on voting rights and how we ensure voting rights and why these elections matter and tie it back to every, mm-hmm. you know people's everyday lives, that's how we're going to sustain energy. As long as people feel their vote matters, they're going to vote. Yeah. I think this is a new day in terms of, you know, voter participation. I hope. I'm my fingers <laughs> crossed and I'm giving all my you know positive optimism yeah. to that idea. I think these midterms are going to be big. They're definitely shaping up that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have definitely a, a couple of really questions, but I just have one that I've been dying to ask and I, I, I need to know the insider's view. Is it terribly annoying to be term limited in the Virginia gubernatorial house? Oh, yeah. So is, is that something that like, it, cause it must be as soon as you get in, I mean, it's, it's a shortened time frame. So yeah. is it almost a, well, a benefit thing, to not worry about reelection? It Sorry, is. Right. So it, it is, it's a, it's a balance, you know, because yeah, it's, it's, Certainly, I think there are two good things. You don't have to worry about re-election in the sense that nobody could ever question, not that there would be any question about what your decision-making is related to those who may be part of your campaign or friends, donors, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Takes that off the table. You don't have to worry about any sort of, not that there would be, but there, nobody can question mm-hmm. decision-making. If you, you have one shot, you do your best. The other good thing, I think, it gives you a sense of urgency and focus early. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I have this amount of time, nobody's getting in our way. This is what we need to do. And I think that gives you a lot of, um, a, a lot of, uh, not only internal focus, but mm-hmm. also, you know, those who are with you, your stakeholders understand they're ready to rally with you and yeah. really make things happen. Oh, interesting. Almost like a mandate of sorts. Yeah. Where you, they, like, they, you're clearly yeah, like, they, they, yeah, almost yeah. all. Like, Nobody can say, oh, I'll get back to you next week. If they're advocating for the same things you yeah. are. It's like everybody on board. This is our moment. This is our time. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, Ralph Northam's election was important to us and we campaigned, mm-hmm. you know, you know, diligently and extensively, <laughs> and we had a great time doing it. And we're just so proud of the legacy that we've left there yeah. with Pam and Ralph Northam and, um, you know, Medicaid expansion, maybe this year, we're really yeah. close, you know, uh, we may get it. Um, so, you know, while you're not up for reelection yourself, you are focused on making sure you leave a good legacy that, you know, mm-hmm. can some, you somebody behind you can run on. Yeah. 
and that was important to us. Yeah, absolutely. And and not to steal the, the thunder from the, the student strategy group or to take all the, the juicy bits away, but are, are there, I'm, I'm really curious, um, we, we actually, Disraeli and I just came from a class on American state legislatures um, taught by a former legislator himself, um, instilling the, the importance of not only the decision-making process, but also the engine out of a lot of the policies. So are, were there any like specific initiatives discussed either in the, the strategy group or uh, in your own practice that you think would be mediums of increasing, especially young uh, participation in public service? Um, I'm thinking something like compulsory service um, or like any, any other kind of like specific strategies, either like the high school level and like having more focus uh, ethics in um, uh, public service classes, or was there any like specific things that you kind of think would be absolutely? I mean, one of our groups focused on one of our sessions focused on civic education yeah. and how we do or don't do the best job with that oh, yeah. in this country, yeah. and how few yeah. you know it's not necessarily a high school requirement anymore, and not every not even U.S. history. My my sister is a a high school history teacher. It's not even required, you know. So you you know, there's that whole argument of understanding history to right. you know make the make you understand where you are in context and why it's important to, you know, to vote, right? to vote mm-hmm. and to get out there and to participate in our democracy. But um, I do believe that, you know, civics education K-12 is undervalued currently in this country and we need to get back to it to make sure that, uh, you know, it's not when you turn 18 that all of a sudden you have this huge, you know, responsibility and, and people take it for granted and we also make it difficult for college students to vote right because right. they're they may be voting right. out of state out of state you know absentee early voting too. absentee ballots it's all confusing and, and difficult i might even argue and it came up in our group that when you're 16 and you register you you can register you know many states have the motor voter law but mm-hmm. you can't vote you have to wait two more years so you can vote i want it to be so like my daughter who grew up in a very political household who's very you know aware from day one she was so excited to cast her first vote i want every 18 year old in this country to feel that invested um Mm -hmm. and i don't think it's uh i think there's a lot of um this is a generalization but maybe you know this current generation young people feel like i might i'm gonna make a difference but i'm Mm -hmm. gonna do it later (laughs) later or i'm gonna do it outside of the norms of our you know uh of regular voter participation because mm-hmm. there's a there's distrust right um and so oh i'll start a nonprofit or all mm-hmm. which i'm a big believer in americorps and peace corps and and volunteerism and nonprofit work and and social entrepreneurship and all of that but i also want people to value like you know those who have gone and fought and died you know value mm-hmm. the right to vote i think it's you know our most basic responsibility here basic right and basic responsibility yeah yeah so i think we can do a lot better Absolutely. Do you think, I, I'm just curious, um, I've, I've been reading a little bit of Ross Douthat, and he definitely opines a lot of the, the decline of trust can be tied to the decline of institution, um, but, you know, really, he, he focuses a lot on, like, church um, declining membership um, and the, the family structure. Is that, do you think, do you see that as a similar kind of one of the major tenets of people kind of becoming more apathetic and they kind of become insulated in their their technology bubble and there's no doubt that there's a disconnect that's happened over this last generation technology is part of it but also just perhaps we have to look at income inequality we have to look at you know 
we're still yesterday was equal pay day like mm -hmm. we're still fighting for equal oh, pay yeah. for equal work um it's 2018 people um i feel like you know look fighting with your utility company or your you know to get them to come to service you know people having to stay home to not be able to find childcare, you know not being not having a, the, the you know the right to child care and maternity leave and all these things i think have I think there are a lot of reasons why kind of the fabric of community right. seems seems broken and people seem just on edge and and not making enough you know yeah, income has they're not making enough to yeah. live and to and to have the quality of life to send their kids to college and not have all this college debt and um you know the the economy is shifting and sectors are shifting and and our education system yeah. hasn't kept up with okay well are we training People for coal mines, valid, important industry at one point in our American history. Now we need to be investing in solar and right. and all kinds of alternative energy. And are we shifting the jobs and the mm -hmm. training to those new sectors, to the new technology, to the new manufacturing? You know, and not to sound so negative, but you know, people are tied to home ownership also, you know, just the ability to move and to be mm. to to follow jobs uh, or to bring those jobs to communities you know to our southwest regions appalachia you know bringing mm -hmm. those new jobs have been a challenge yeah, because, right. you know to find the workforce opioid crisis i mean we oh, could yeah. go on there's just a lot but i am hopeful that with this this new surge of you know the good value of the internet is the connectivity we can find in positive mm -hmm. ways but then we talk about Zuckerberg yesterday. And, wow, it's, it's well, a, they're just. He benefits from senators not being technologically literate. It's unbelievable, isn't it? The there was we were talking about it in class. The question that he got about how Facebook, why Facebook can be, why Facebook can be free, uh, where uh, Senator Hatch said, you know, how do you guys make money or something like that? And Zuckerberg couldn't do anything but laugh. <laughs> like we saw at like, yeah, it's been going swimmingly, so there's nothing to laugh at there. Right. But yeah, you know. I'm sorry, but Lindsey Graham bragging about the fact that he's never sent an email in his life. I, that's right. that's perplexing. It is kind of perplexing. You know, now we had Senator Warner here, um, who talked a lot about you know his work on the Intelligence Committee and and corporate responsibility and, the, and look AI, all these right. new fast moving sectors that if this group can't keep up. Then we've yeah. got to hold yep. somebody accountable for their self-regulation, and you know, it, it just like, and the fact that our own elections were clearly, mm. you know, yep. was, clearly influenced and, and bugged by technology. Yet we have done very little but to I've stop it. I've never sent an email, and I'm kind of proud about that. I don't know if that's the right, you know, mm -hmm. we've got to come up with a, a commission or a, a regulatory agency to be able to keep up. Yeah, um, so I think a couple of things there. You have you have the decline of trust and decline of communities and or the you know family structures and those types of things. You know you have a difference in ideology of the role of government to kind of combat those things from an inequality standpoint, from a regulatory standpoint, from a you know programmatic standpoint. You uh you know how do you kind of bridge those gaps? You know because today you know I think it was yesterday. You know, uh, the president signed an executive order about, you know, Medicare recipients working or, you know, SNAP recipients uh, working, something along those yeah. lines, you know, which I think several studies have shown that 
you know, there's a balance to that and it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really make a difference, you know, but at the same time, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm working 40 hours or 20 hours at some point it's, it becomes cheaper for me not to work to actually get the benefit from the government than it is to work, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, what do, how do we kind of bridge those gaps to actually make the progress for people so that wages actually grow because in certain groups, the, you know, amount of wealth is no different in 2000, particularly African-Americans than it is in 2017, you know, in terms of what they're making, taking home. When you compare the dollars, it's basically the same thing. You know, our wage growth is, less than the rate of inflation you know so we're money is stagnant but cost continues to rise you know which adds pressure to the family which is like the cyclical cycle mm -hmm. you know so any kind of i know that's a lot that's and a we, lot we can't solve you, the world in what i left out was health care i mean health care is a huge drain on our economy and on our uh, and on our and on our um our citizens mm -hmm. and and so if we don't figure it out, if we don't figure out this college debt burden, if we don't figure out health care, the fact that we don't have everyone in this country insured is what is continuing to drive the costs up. And until we get everyone insured, we, have, we will continue to see the increase in um, health care costs. So there has to be some accountability. And what President Obama proposed in the Medicaid expansion was that every state find a way in a market, if they mm -hmm. couldn't do it, then the federal government would do it. I just tried to help a, a dear old friend of mine sign up. She's in the gap. She makes too much to qualify mm -hmm. for, the, for the market, and she doesn't make enough for Medicaid, and she is better off going to her doctor and saying she's uninsured, and they write down the cost of a visit than it is for her to try to afford the premiums as she Oh, wow. And now here, and this is in Virginia where we mm -hmm. don't have, and, and so an Anthem has left the Northern Virginia market. And so we have uninsured folks who are not getting the preventative care they need and who may have catastrophic illness or accident. And right. then there we all are. So I do think we have to hold businesses in corporate America responsible, that shareholder value is important, but also worker value is important. I think that's a concept that's been lost over time. It's been so much focused on stock market, mm -hmm. stock value, net worth of a company. And um, at, at some point, and, you know, I think, I think your generation is going to help demand this. Look at what we're seeing in terms of marketplace. And, okay, what's your position on, on guns? Well, you know, we're going to have social media, mm -hmm. what, you know, market-driven responses to corporate choices, I think, will help hold accountable. Corporations are always going to be driven by bottom line. And if right. their market is diminished because of their policies and practices, and as the world becomes more transparent because more information is online, mm -hmm. maybe we drive corporate responsibility that way. But we also have, we talked about B corporations and... You know, those companies that uh, put out their policies, their, their sustainability policies, they're transparent in their um, finances, and their com community responsibility is a, is a priority, and they have a rating system, which is by this organization, B Corp, yep. that uh, 2,100 companies now are um, listed within B Corp as socially responsible companies. And so, you know, at some point... That's where people are going to choose to do their business, you mm -hmm. know? Um, 
I have to be optimistic, yeah. but it does seem like, uh, you know, the more we talk about it, the more awareness we draw to the idea that we're becoming more and more separated and disconnected, uh, the more there are opportunities for us to find a way back together again. And certainly leadership is important. Local leadership, state yeah. leadership, presidential leadership is important. And I feel like we've lost a lot of air in our wings, and, but, you know, we'll, we'll get it back. And how much of that do you think states should be driving versus federal government? I think states can drive a lot of it, and I think these that's why I think these governor's races are important. Mm-hmm. Um, the congressional map is important, but the state, it touches everything. The rule, the regulations that come out of these general assemblies, like I said, women's health care, reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, um, environmental regulation and public utility regulation, transportation, which, yeah. you know, there's a regional component to that, but also, you know, there's a local component, investments in public education. You know, states drive the major investments in our public schools and education system. So, or share a half the responsibility. So, I mean, I think that people need to pay more attention. It's really easy to be here in Washington and very focused on Congress and what they don't do every day. Um, and the presidency, which gets all the airtime, but really yeah. your state and local governments are really impacting daily lives, your daily life, right. um, much more heavily than the federal government when you think about it. So I hope that that inspires, I hope that some of the stories that we've been able to t- tell about our, our challenges, but the opportunities and the progress that we've made at the state level in Virginia have inspired some to think about going back to their states mm-hmm. and thinking about serving at the state level, not just thinking about, am I going to work for a congressman or am I going to run a campaign? There are all these opportunities in state government, state and local parks. Um, you know, we great opportunity for improving quality of life of communities. Great businesses grow up around mm-hmm. our state parks and um, great history there and ways for families to be together and be connected yeah. outdoors, in nature, off the Internet, and just being <laughs> with each other, learning about nature. So I'm a big believer in parkland and outdoor time uh, for families. And I mean, you have Shenandoah, so that's pretty, yeah. that's pretty we easy. We have some good ones. <laughs> so we have, like, we have a, a 33 state parks, and they're so affordable. Um, and they're a great way for families to get together. And we don't have televisions in the camp, the cabins. And, you know, it's just a great way to get together, get on a river, go outside for a hike, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know. So I'm a big believer in state and local parks, after-school programs for kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so. so something interesting about Virginia getting back a bit to um, income inequality is Virginia, much like many other, um, like some of the larger economic-producing states, uh, I'm thinking Pennsylvania, where I'm where I'm from. There's Pittsburgh, and there's Philadelphia, and that's where the the engine of growths are, and there's this wide swath of uh, rural. Um, disaffected, kind of being left behind the, the old coal mining aspect. Well, there, there really weren't that many coal miners to begin with. There, there, there's just not that many jobs. There's Dollar Generals and there's hospitals. I think that's the same. Please correct me if I'm wrong. In Virginia, where there's a, there's yeah, a although, really wide swath of... Although we're losing our rural hospitals because of lack of Medicaid expansion. But yes, which is a, there a, is a wide... Yeah. yeah, we've got the urban areas mm-hmm. uh, and then we've got big suburban swap and then we've got you know southwest and southern virginia where you know but we've got unemployment challenges and and poverty and you know challenges with 
families that are really struggling, mm-hmm. whether we're in you know, our capital city, Richmond, Fairfax County. Yeah. I mean, even though we have a low rate of free and reduced lunch in our Fairfax County schools, we still have close to 54,000 children who re- rely, their families rely on free and reduced lunch. That's a lot of children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and so while our numbers as a state are good and positive, there are, there, there's poverty. 21 million children across our country struggle with food insecurity mm-hmm. and hunger. Um, that says something about all of us, and and you know it's a solvable problem. We can end child hunger. We it's not because we're in the middle of a famine, right? Yeah. We have agriculture. We have resources. So it's just how do we redirect and and make sure that we're get lifting those families and folks up out of poverty. That that's it's really through education, job training, and um, I would say I mean healthcare. Yeah. Do you, I, I'm I'm not quite well versed with the battle in Virginia specific to school vouchers and um, the charter school, but yeah. do, do you do you see that as an A generally in a, a supporters of charter schools typically state that they're much more agile to adopt newer practices. Opponents say that they siphon money away from desperately. Um, underfunded public schools. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm certainly not asking for a, yeah, yeah. You know, a position, but... No, 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 I have a position. Oh, yeah, yeah, so place, I'm happy yeah. to talk about that yeah. because I've done most of my work over the last four years, five years in public schools in Virginia and, uh, you know, through the child nutrition programs, yep. focused on school meals, um, after schools, summer meals. So in Virginia, it's a good thing that we do not have many charter schools. We have couple par- public charters, but not straight up charter schools, because okay. I do believe they redirect resources in in an inefficient and impractical way for most students. Mm-hmm. Like there may be a small amount of students who benefit, but the siphoning away and the, the of tax dollars when we actually need more resources in our public schools. And you have mm-hmm. to remember, 90% of children in this country attend a public school. We are never going to reach all the children we need to reach in by charter school unless we say, okay, we are shutting down the public school system. Like, how practical would this be? We're going to shut it down, and we're all going to be charter schools. So how, think about the infrastructure and the, oh, yeah. the realignment of it, it just and how many children lost in the time that it takes to move from one system to the other. Why don't we support the system that we have? Many great teachers doing great, amazing things. I've seen them. But they need more guidance counselors. They need, you know, it's not just about money, but boy, are you seeing these teachers protest right. all over the country. Because yeah. finally, it's like we can't do our job anymore. And it's not necessarily about our pay, although... Teachers are underpaid. They're underpaid. But they also, they need the support of enough teachers. They need the support of guidance counselors. They need, you know, the resources of art teachers and PE teachers Mm -hmm. and everybody that goes around the whole community of developing a whole child. But teacher pay has been not invested in over way too many years. So in Oklahoma, they were having a four-day school week. How does that benefit yeah. your future workforce? Right. Let's think about each individual child, but let's also think about as a state, how are we attracting jobs of the future yeah. if we don't have an educated workforce? Because, wow, well, sorry, we just don't. 
have enough school. Well, they assume they can go to the University of Oklahoma, no offense to any Sooners listening, you know, and then, you know, pick up everything from there and hope it works out. And we've found it doesn't work out. And companies are looking for, you know, people with master's degrees, you know, to to get entry-level jobs, which is utterly ridiculous. You all know that. It's always when we get the degree that the job wants the next degree. So, but... But it actually is underlying it, right? Yeah. And so it's an ever-ending cycle, you know. Right. I know Jake and I, we were active, as we are actively looking and thinking of what do we do in policy and what's mm-hmm. next. You know, the having to have, you know, a master's degree to get a analyst, you know, research analyst job that may pay X amount of dollars, you know, is disheartening in a sense. And then it kind of sends you on this ever-ending cyclical cycle of I'm just trying to play catch-up the whole time. Mm -hmm. You know, so I I think, and I think a lot of your work with children and you think of military and them reacclimating, you know, Mm -hmm. back. And I think the government does a halfway decent job of taking care of its veterans. And it's always been a focus, federal, state, local level, taking care of veterans and helping them get back into the Mm -hmm. community. You think there are things we can learn from the programs that we put in place to take care of veterans as they reacclimate, Mm -hmm. you know, back to their families, back to new jobs, and we Mm -hmm. retrain those things. Are there things that companies could do or government could do when they think of the average worker coming back, thinking of the change in technology, et cetera? Yeah, I think, and I think we're doing it. I think we're doing it in Virginia. And by the way, I think, I think we do a pretty good job with veterans, but I think we can always do better. Of course. And by the way, how many more veterans do we have now after right. 16 years of war, right? So in Virginia, you know, my husband focused a lot on transitioning veterans um, and making sure that companies, we had a program, V3, where companies were focused on looking to the veteran community for mm-hmm. skill sets. Community colleges were retooling to make sure that they had you know, courses available to translate skills learned in the military to jobs in the, in the area around that community college and had co- companies focused on the community. Like if, if we were trying to attract a company to come to Virginia in a particular region, say South, Southwest Virginia, you know, what are the companies that are looking to come there? What are the skill sets that are missing? Mm-hmm. And how does the community college and how do we get corporations to help fund the curriculum at this community college to build that future workforce? So that kind of thing, um, you know, I, I do think uh, there, there needs to be a little bit more awareness <laughs> across the board and appreciation. And we're going to talk next week about this idea of the civilian military, the, um, the military that we have, and how few people in our country have a family member that that serve. You know, less mm-hmm. than one percent of our country serves or has a family member that served in the military. And so, making sure there is this awareness of this sacrifice and and how we are welcoming our veterans back and making sure we have employment opportunities. And then, do we require? Do we think about how do we require maybe all young people to serve? Not maybe not require, but make it more available as an opportunity, right? AmeriCorps and Peace Corps and that kind of thing. So a long way of saying your question really was, um, you know, how do, how can we better serve those those communities that are looking for, for new opportunities for job growth? And I think that's how we do it. We do it by education and training and recognizing that not every student's going to get a college degree. There are some really high-paying jobs in the electrical engineering, in mm-hmm. electrical sector, plumbing sector, where you don't need a four-year degree. You need two good years of mm-hmm. cybersecurity, 36,000 open jobs, good-paying jobs, $80,000 here in Virginia, and we don't have the people to fill them because we're not even, not every high school in Virginia teaches mm-hmm. a computer. You know, right. Not, 
we're not talking about cyber, we're talking about coding and we're talking about, you know, just um, basic computer classes we're talking about. Um, but there has been a real push and I, you know, I'm proud of the work that we've done in Virginia to increase uh, the availability of, of computer and coding classes earlier too, to get kids mm -hmm. interested mm -hmm. when, they're, when they're kindergarten. Right. That's what it's going to take. But we've got to shift this new economy because the way we're doing it now isn't quite there as a country. I'm going to ask just one more question because I know we, we were definitely taking up too much of your time. And, you know, we're. No, no, this we're, is a great combo. Um, we're kind. I've had the, the pleasure of coming across um, several students of Thomas Jefferson High School, and they are just the most highly performing 16, 17-year-olds, and they, they are lucky enough to go to a school, um, which I believe is a state magnet school, yeah. um, that has coding and robotics. Um, I also had the, the great privilege of working with Anacostia High School, and this is getting back to, sorry to, to kind of backtrack on two, um, the charter school question. Students at if, if they lived in in south in southeast in ward eight seven they would either go to blue or high school blue obviously having their own mm -hmm. issues of late um, those students that in the lottery system in DC they, they would be counting their lucky stars if they were selected to go to right. um, any of the other charter schools mainly Northwest um, what would you the, and the option for them of course the default is Anacostia or blue and that. 43% graduation rates. They don't have the same type of extracurriculars. What 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 do we do for those those students right, right now? Because the it's... I'm not saying there shouldn't be charter schools because I I just I don't agree with diverting resources away from the public schools in order to pay for charter schools. Oh, interesting. So okay. I think every child life every day right now every child should have every opportunity to find a way into a better into the best situation for them. Mm -hmm. Right. I just don't want to divert away resources away from Anacostia to pay for a few kids to go to a TJ mm -hmm. in DC. I think, but I do think there's urgency to this public education situation. I do think too that um, the inequality in education is a huge, huge concern. Why do some kids in some schools in Fairfax County have a certain level of income per student based on the fact that they're in a wealthy county mm -hmm. versus those on the other side of Fairfax County who, so to me, that's where we have to address, you know, the inconsistency. Oh, interesting. It, it's also, it's, it, sorry to the, cut you off, is, isn't it also a messaging, because um, there's, there's a broader kind of the, the macro, we need more options for more kids, but there's also the kind of the Horatio Oliver, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You you haven't made it now, but you will make it kind of American mindset. And I think that is um, counterproductive to a parent telling their kid, it's okay to be a plumber. And it's okay, because it is, it's completely fine. It's, a, it's an honorable profession and it, it makes mm -hmm. fine money. But that's, that's a tough message, I think, for some parents to tell their students. And definitely for um, for sure, school administrators and for first generation families whose the ideal was mm -hmm. always, you know, we're going to college, you know, I didn't get to go to college, but I think every individual child has to be, you know, choose their direction and see what the, you know, what is best for them mm -hmm. right. because there are these critical sectors that are going without and, you know, if you're going to be a 
uh, a welder in Newport News and work on ships. Not necessarily. It's not a bad thing. A bad thing. No. There's honor in that job. There is honor. Mm -hmm. and, and to work on our, you know, our, our Navy ships and um, and to get paid a, a really great salary with benefits and to be home at a certain time mm -hmm. every day to have dinner with your family when <laughs> we're right. talking about the disconnected right. family. So, yeah. but I don't think we need to make choices for everyone, but I think we need to give everyone options of what the right pathway is for them and mm -hmm. let students explore for themselves without their parents pushing them to yeah. say, you have to go spend this amount of money on a four-year degree. We love our community college system in Virginia. It's an Nova's incredibly great. Yeah. affordable, mm -hmm. wonderful, Great courses, yeah. Yeah. Great, so, great yeah. pathway to begin to get either a two-year certification or be on your way for a four-year. Yeah. Yep. So, so, yeah, there's no one-size-fits-all. I think that's the mm -hmm. idea in education that we have to get back to. That's a great point. Yep. So the, the powers that be are telling us we have to go. Um, so this has been a great conversation, but I'm going to steal a question on our way out. We've talked about family a lot. You've come back to D.C. What's next for you and your family as you settle back in D.C.? Are you still going to focus on right. Virginia? Well, let's just say this is really one thing. We have come back to Northern Virginia. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> let's make that correct. Uh, so we're, we are... Uh, Listen, I've enjoyed this fellowship. I'm going to continue to work on mm -hmm. child hunger and national service and military families um, and finding pathways through nonprofits and other organizations to do that. Uh, we're working, my husband's very active on this gerrymandering issue with Eric Holder and Speaker Pelosi and President Obama because 2020 and the redrawing of the lines is going to be critical. So we're staying busy and yeah. we're, going to, yeah. we're going to be active in these midterms too because that's going to be exciting. Perfect. Well, appreciate you talking to us here at GPPR. Uh, we really appreciate the conversation. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank Hope you. you have a good one. Good luck with everything. Uh, thank you. Good luck to you, too. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the GPPR podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more content from the Georgetown Public Policy Review, check out our website at www.gppreview.com, our Twitter at GP Policy Review or our Facebook GPP Review. Thank you.